0: that video clip isn't even a drop in the bucket in terms of the animals that inhabit our Earth. Okay. According to what is billed as the most accurate estimate, humans share the planet with as many as 8.7 million different forms of life. An astonishing 86% of all plants and animals on land, and 91% of those in the seas have yet to be named and cataloged. When it comes to the seas, or to the sea, humans have only explored 5% of what lies under the waves. We know more about the surface of Mars than what we know of what lies in the deep. As I thought about this and about the story of creation as told in Genesis, it struck me That creation is another means by which we can come to know who God is. What does it say about a creator who puts so much beauty, intricacy, and adaptive creativity into creatures that may never be seen with human eyes? Now, if I had been God, my pragmatic personality would have been seen all over creation. So I would have been like, oh, lots of people, you know, see this, and I would have splashed it with beauty and color, and, you know, a few people scuba dive, so I'll put some like, you know, in the the higher up, you know, depths, but like in the deep, who's going to see that? And you would, I would just left that blank. We don't see that with God. No matter where we look in creation, no matter how deep we go, no matter what new discovery is made, we see unbelievable intricacies. This is a reflection of who God is. My text, which is primarily found in Genesis 3, is part of a biblical narrative or story that opens in creation. The creation account commences in Genesis 1, the first book of the Bible, and it starts with the words, In the beginning. These three words summarize the entire narrative, and these three words invite us into the story. The story itself is an incredible story. It's complete with a setting, a climax, and, or a conflict, and a climax. It can be neatly divided into three acts. Paradise, the fall, and a seat of hope. We're gonna look briefly at paradise. We're gonna spend the bulk of our time on the fall. So let's start by looking at um, act one, which is paradise, um, in Genesis 1.31. It says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So four times, God declares his creation good. So he makes something, he says, oh, that's good. Makes something more, that's good. Good, makes more good. Makes humans, that's very good. The term behold in this scripture, in this verse, it's an invitation, come in. Check out this scene. Imagine what creation was like from God's vantage point at this point. When we see the present-day splendor in his creation, it gives us a semblance of what things were like, like what we saw in the video. just gives us just a, a glimmer. God's detail and delight in creation is still readily apparent. We see it in the spectacular Swiss Alps, we see it in bizarre, deep-sea creatures, in a pristine coral reefs, in a bat's ability to circumnavigate, and in the breathtaking Palawan rock islands, in the intricacies of an eyeball. And think about it, in the splendor of a sunset. The opening act of Genesis explains that in addition to his general creation, God created a royal garden, an enclosed park, like a a divine sanctuary, if you will, where according to one commentator, God invited humans to enjoy bliss and harmony between themselves and God, with one another, with the animals, and with the land. So absolute harmony in every sphere. God filled the garden with astounding flora and fauna. On the flora side of things, let's look at Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in regards to vegetation, this royal garden was both a horticulturist and a foodie's dream location. I mean, it was just incredible. It lacked nothing. It was like a banqueting table, absolutely beautiful and delicious. Interestingly, the first tree that's uh, mentioned in these verses is the tree of life. Now, scripture gives us little information about it. However, the implication is that this tree is supernatural. It has incredible power. It provides life beyond what's natural, and it's incredibly potent. So you'd think with such an amazing tree in your midst that that would be the tree that they would be fixated on. But what are they fixated on? Like us, they're fixated on what they cannot have or should not have. Now, of this second tree, in Genesis two sixteen through 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Now, there are many thoughts on what exactly are the consequences of eating of this tree. One thing we know for sure is that as a result of them eating of that tree, there was eventual physical death. Additionally, eating of this tree forced them and all future generations to have to live in a constant state of vigilance or awareness about sin. The wording of Genesis 4:7 in the Net Bible shows this very clearly. It says, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to dominate you, but you must subdue it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, I get so tired of constantly having to fight against sin. Maybe I'm more sinful than the most than the rest of you, but it's hard for me It's constant. It's constantly being aware and it's constantly slipping up and it seems like it ever is consuming me And it's tiring That is an example of one of the tragic consequences that came from eating of that fruit We now enter into act two which is the fall so let's look at our scriptural text. Um, it begins with Eve deciding to eat of the tree of good and evil. It's Genesis 3, 6 through 13. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. In Act 2, Adam and Eve disobey God and eat the forbidden fruit. Eating from the tree did not make things better. Instead, they were immediately uncomfortable with their nakedness, and they were filled with shame. The unbelievable, beautiful differences that God had created in them, male and female, were now something that they wanted to cover up. Remember, up until that point in the garden, as far as we know, people, there had been no deaf people, had lived together in harmony with the animals, with the surroundings, everything had been harmonious. <clears throat> and so their first thought was not, oh, let me go kill an animal, to cover myself. They grabbed whatever they could, which was big leaves, to make a covering for themselves. Next thing we're told, they hear the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. Now, most commentaries that I read believe this was a routine thing that would happen, that God would come to the garden in the cool of the evening and would walk with Adam and Eve. So God shows up as usual, and Adam and Eve run for cover. They hide from God. Now, obviously, God knew what had happened, where they were at, because he's omniscient. And I know that if I'd been God, I would have not been very happy. As a matter of fact, as I think about this from a human perspective, and it's very important here that, um, because part of my message is going to be talking about how with sin there's a corruption of the ability to see who God is. So you're going to hear in my thinking my corruptedness. So if I, what would be logical to me would be that God would show up, he's all-powerful, and that he would come and he would say, are you kidding me? I give you one thing to not do? I give you all this awesome stuff, it was perfect, and I ask one thing of you, and you can't even do it? (sighs) And I would just kill him. (sighs) Or, I sw- here's another logical, you know, from a human perspective, I can imagine coming and just being, you've got to be kidding me. First, you don't obey the one thing that I ask of you. One stinking thing. And then, you have the gall to hide from me? Almighty God, are you kidding me? Whatever, you losers. And I'd walk away disgusted and just leave them. The third option, which is the one I would take with my children, is I would say, I'd be upset. They, they sinned. They disobeyed me blatantly. And then they go and hide. Like I, the adult, the authority figure, is supposed to come crawling after them and find them? I don't think so. So then I would say, get over here right now. That's the one I would like. But we don't see God do any of those things. What he does is unbelievable. God takes the initiative. God humbles himself. God pursues them. And we see this again. It's so important that we make this connection. This says something about God's character. This tells us something about who he is. We see this again in Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. He took the initiative. Additionally, when we go back to Romans, I mean to Genesis 3 9, it says that he called out to Adam, Where are you? I think when God asks, Where are you? He is giving Adam and Eve a chance to willingly come to him, to own what they did, to take responsibility, to make things right. Now, whether I'm counseling people in Micronesia or whether I'm counseling people here in the States, I have found that it's very common that people haven't stopped to think about where they are. They're so caught up in their sin, or their survival, or their determination to meet their needs in whatever way they think that is, will happen, that they haven't recognized where they are spiritually, psychologically, And physically as a counselor it's often by asking a simple question like where are you how'd you get here that the person will for the very first time become aware of their pain and their wayward the wayward road that they are on never once have I met an alcoholic who said well you know my my goal was just to start drinking a little bit And then, you know, become an alcoholic. Nor have I ever met anyone who said, oh, I'm just going to kind of dabble in pornography because my goal is to be uh, owned by that, to be enslaved to that sin. I can imagine the sadness that God must feel, must have felt, when he realized the destructive choice that Adam and Eve had made. In verse 10, we see some of the consequences of their choice immediately. Remember, God had just asked Adam where he was. And Adam answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Well, prior to this, remember, this was a routine thing. He'd heard God in the garden many times, and he was never afraid. Why? Because God was wholly good, always trustworthy, and always uh, faithful. His character was clear as day. There was no reason to be afraid. Adam and Eve had always been naked. And they had never once felt uncomfortable without clothes on. But fascinating, with sin, we immediately see two devastating consequences, fear and shame. Adam and Eve's ability to accurately see and know God is now skewed and corrupted, and they no longer see the absolute beauty of God's creation. Instead, such amazing love that God has for them is tainted with fear, and such spectacular beauty is tarnished with shame. And it is again that we see the true nature of God in his response to them. So let's look at Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed clothed them. I'm amazed at God's tender love in response to the agony of Adam and Eve's shame. Shame is different from guilt. Guilt is when I feel bad for what I did. Shame is I feel bad for who I am, my very nature. One expert puts it this way. Shame is the most disturbing experience individuals ever have about themselves. No other emotion feels more deeply disturbing because in the moment of shame, the self feels wounded from within. If you, here, here's an experiment for you. Think about the most shameful thing in your life. It's painful. And why don't you go ahead and share that with, with us? Anyone while I'm here? Yeah. You get it, huh? <laughs> when God sees Adam and Eve's excruciating shame resulting from their blatant disobedience, his response is astounding because at that point he had every right and it was reasonable for him to execute justice. Instead, in love, God kills one of his most precious and innocent animals and he mercifully covers Adam and Eve's shame with their skin. This marking the first death of any creature in the garden. I'm sure that God loved his spectacular animals, that he had created them after all. And all you have to do is look at the amazing, incredible animal kingdom and the intricacies found there to know that good chance he put some thought into them. Besides the fact that it tells us in scripture that as he's creating, he's going, oh, that's good, that's good, that's very good. And yet to alleviate the painful shame being experienced by Adam and Eve, God turns and hurts himself. That's huge. This is mind-boggling. He kills something precious to him. And in Act act 2 of this narrative, we see God gently covering their shame with the skin of his beloved animal. And centuries later, we see God once again showing his extreme compassion and mercy for his people when he sacrificed something far more precious to him, when he sacrificed his only son, again, because he sees our pain and he wants to cover it. We see more of God's character when in verse 22 and 23 of Genesis 3 he says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. Okay, this is really interesting, and you will miss it probably unless you're reading a commentary or something. In the more accurate translations of the Bible, you will see that dash that is found before, between forever and therefore. It appears that the very thought of Adam and Eve living forever in their sinful state is unbearable to God. Look at the switch in, in uh, where he's going. He switches, switches streams. God knew that just as they had been tempted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would also now be tempted to eat of the tree of life. And by eating of that tree they would then live eternally in this wretched, sinful condition. And this is a horrible thought to God. So horrible that it appears that he can't even stick with it. He immediately switches and says, oh, let's get them out of there. Now, when I was a very young girl, my brother and I used to sneak into our living room where there was a big gold-edged Bible, family Bible, that sat on the uh, table, uh, table, what do you call that thing? Coffee table, (laughs) say tablecloth. And uh, the reason we would do that is because inside that old family Bible, there were naked pictures, (laughs) especially in Genesis. So one of the pictures that really stands out in my mind is a picture of what looked like a, a very angry angel with like a flaming sword. And a cowering Adam and Eve, and it almost looked like they were just fleeing, like terrified of this angel trying to get out of that, you know, being chased out of the garden. And I knew that Adam and Eve had sinned and that they were, you know, it was a terrifying um, idea. And yet after doing the research for this sermon, I recognize now that when God removed Adam and Eve from the garden, it was an act of, of mercy. It's like the parent who puts a baby gate at the bottom of a stairwell or at the top because they don't want their child to be seriously injured. Thus in love, God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden so they will not have to live eternally in their brokenness with the potential of causing unimaginable harm. Imagine Hitler living forever, eternally. Over and over again, just in this third chapter of Genesis, we see God responding to Adam and Eve according to his character. In other words, his responses are a reflection of who he is. And this is huge because it so clearly shows the true nature of God. And it's extremely significant because experts agree that that our first perceptions of God are naturally formed by our experiences with our earthly fathers, since both God and earthly fathers are seen as important and powerful authority figures. There's the problem. No matter how wonderful our fathers may have been, none of us, not one, has experienced a perfect parent. But all of us take these experiences with our fathers, including our painful ones, and unfortunately assume that God has some of these same qualities and characteristics. In the psychology field, we call this transference. There's a Chinese proverb that puts it this way. 90% of what we see lies behind our eyes. In other words, our experiences in life... And what we have come to believe influences, changes, distorts everything that we see. This creates a significant challenge when we are trying to understand who God really is. This was absolutely true in my own life. I have never once doubted that my father loved me. Never once. My father was a Christian. He was a godly man. Yet my father was very strict. He was not abusive. He was always just. He seemed to have eyes in the back of his head. And I'm telling you, if I did something wrong, I don't know how he did it, but it's like he always would catch me. It was like he was omniscient. And when I was caught, he always had very serious consequences that he would very calmly execute for my misbehavior. No amount of tears, no amount of repentance on my part would ever alter or change a consequence because the consequences were always logical and just results of my misbehavior. I think it's important to say at this point that I have never been a rebellious person. Not because I'm good. I just think some people are born that way. I like rules. I like people who like rules. I don't particularly enjoy people who don't like rules. (laughs) So I'm just a rule follower. And this is important to know, because whenever I did do something wrong, I'd probably just naturally feel really guilty. And certainly, if you expressed even the slightest bit of disappointment, oh my, that would be enough to get me to change my ways. On the other hand, My brother was always rebellious and was always breaking the rules on purpose. He was the one dragging me into the living room to look at those naked pictures, by the way. And he's now a pastor. Um, He really needed to have serious consequences to get his attention and to get him to change his ways. Now, you have to understand, my father's attitude on discipline was one of justice. It's not who you are, it's what you did. So X behavior equals Y consequence, no matter who you are. That was devastating for me. I don't use that word lightly. At times, it was devastating. Just the slightest, a very sensitive person, just the slightest correction was enough. So the punishment seemed very harsh to me. And certainly, as I came to think about God, I accepted Christ when I was 10. Uh, my thoughts were certainly that, you know, God is way more perfect than my dad. And so his standards would be even, you know, harder. And he's definitely gonna catch me if I disobey. He is omniscient. And, you know, and his standards are way higher. His standards are perfection. So if my dad's, you know, has this kind of consequence, imagine what God's would be. It wasn't until I was in my 30s that I came to know God's grace. Just like we saw in the Garden of Eden over and over and over again, I came to know God's that kind of grace. It was life-changing for me. When I came to understand that God's grace and God's mercy is greater than all of my sin and all of my shame. I couldn't believe the way God lavished his forgiveness and love on me. I was stunned at the way God saw my sensitive heart and would just give me a tender look that brought me to repentance. Repentance. I couldn't believe the way God totally got the pain of my shame, the excruciating pain. And his response was one of immediately covering, let me cover that, blew me away. It still blows me away. I don't think I will ever, ever come to have that be something that doesn't blow me away. For some of you, this whole process of sorting out who the real God is can be quite difficult. If you have a background where your father figure was abusive, emotionally distant, or where he was physically absent, not only can this be a challenging process, but it can be a painful process. But it's definitely worth the effort to arrive at the life-changing truth that God is good, loving, and full of grace, like we saw over and over again in Genesis 3. God knows our needs and how to meet them. Just like he so compassionately and sensitively responded to the excruciating shame of Adam and Eve. And today, God provides us with a covering for our shame through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. In Christ, we have hope of seeing God for who he really is. And we do this by spending time with God, by knowing scripture, and by praying. And some of those are listed in your bulletin, some of the the lies of Satan. Um, And then you can refute that with the truth of God's word. Even today, my prayer is that we may all begin a new journey of coming to discover who God really is as is ultimately revealed in the gracious person of Jesus Christ. And may you be reminded of the God who wants to stoop down and cover your shame. And Max Lucado puts this beautifully. He says, Our Savior kneels down and gazes upon the darkest acts of our lives. But rather than recoil in horror, he reaches out in kindness and says, I can clean that if you want. And from the basin of his grace, he scoops a palm full of mercy and washes our sins. Let's pray. God, we are blown away by the depth of your love. We are amazed at your grace that is greater than all of our sin and all of our shame. God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring healing to our broken eyes that corrupt and distort the beauty of who you are. Pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.